I mean, it was a fascinating place to live and, and a you know, really interesting work. But I chose New Delhi over, say, Vienna because it was challenging. It was going to keep me working hard, focused on everything I did. And when, and then I was there, someone who was on the panel, that business panel I'd been working on years before, called me completely unexpectedly and offered me a job with PricewaterhouseCoopers. And that's how I resigned from the diplomatic or from the government went into PwC, Pauline Matthewson, who, who was a partner in PwC, was the one. She rang me out of the blue and, and we'd worked together years before and said, do you want to come to, to work in PwC? And, you, you know, I'd done three diplomatic postings. My kids were getting to teenage years. It was time to move. And, and so I took the job and, and I was made a partner in a year. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the GMI Rocket Show. I'm your host, Roman Zelichenko. I am a former immigration lawyer turned entrepreneur. Um, I'm the founder of Laborless, which is an immigration tech startup focusing on H-1B compliance, and also the founder of GMI Rocket, which brings you this show. Uh, today, I'm really honored and excited to have an amazing conversation with our guest, Brendan Ryan, who is the CEO of Nomadic. Um, so Nomadic is an immigration and kind of business travel uh, tech company. Um, I would say it's a startup, uh, which it is. It's a small company that were born really just a few years ago. Um, but they do come with a wealth of knowledge and have spun out from Fragomen, which is the largest uh, immigration law firm in the world. So it's this really cool combination of tech startup plus kind of this you know really big um, backdrop of a wealth of information from all around the world. So super excited. Um, and, and Brendan is uh, you know Australian by, by birth, and we're going to get into his story. He's lived all over the world and worked in public, in the public sector, in the private sector, in all across the world in different continents. Um, and so I'm just excited to hear this journey of kind of going from working for the government in Australia to working for the biggest firms in the world doing immigration, and then what it's like now sort of running and growing, um, you know, something that's more nimble and more of a startup. So uh, I, I hope that people can, uh, who are listening and watching are going to get a lot out of this and, and learn and relate. And uh, hopefully if you're growing your own uh, tech startup in the immigration space, um, you'll glean some insights from this. So without further ado, uh, Brendan, thank you so much for being here and, and sharing your time um, and just looking forward to learning so much from you. No problem. I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, I, I, I guess sometimes I say learning from you, but I guess the really the big thing is learning about you, right? It's learning about the the person, and often the story of the person sort of turns into well, what are the insights you've picked up along the way? What are the things you're seeing in the industry now or, or moving forward? Um, and we were just talking a little bit before we went live about how, and I will die by this statement. I think you know stories about business and entrepreneurship for me at least. First and foremost, are stories about the person behind them, why they did what they did, what their motivation was, how they got through challenges, because that's where we learn, right? If I if I listen to someone whose ice cream stand was struggling and what they did to get out of that, I can very easily relate that to my technology business. Totally different industries, but it's like, what was your mindset? You know, moving around and thinking about things and things like that. So um, I'm excited to learn about your story as well. Um, I'm based in 
New York City. And you're, are you also in New York right now? Uh, no, New Jersey. New Jersey. Okay. So we're, we're both in the East Coast. So yeah. um, finally, it's getting uh, nice out. So, you know, and then hopefully we'll, folks will be able to come out, um, you know, outside soon and actually be around others. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but you, okay, so you're in New Jersey now. You are from Australia, though. Is that, is that where you were, were you born in Australia? Yeah, I mean, I I uh, was born in Sydney, but um, my father worked for NASA of all things, um, and so we moved around Australia a lot when I was a kid. Um, uh, as he built his career um, uh, within NASA, um, we ended up in Canberra, um, which is the capital, and uh, and and just outside of Canberra is a large. NASA facility um, that's quite crucial for their deep space network. And uh, and so I ended up in what was a government town, effectively, um, uh, with my father and, and my family. Um, uh, but having lived in some extraordinarily remote parts of Australia as well, um, uh, because that's where the NASA facilities were. And when I talk about remote, I'm talking having to drive you know, 500 miles to go sort of grocery shopping every few months. Um, wow. Was, it was pretty remote parts of the country. I, I immediately have questions. So number one, how did your, how did your father get a job in, in, in NASA? I mean, I mean it, it, very quickly, if you can share the story, that would be really interesting. So, so my, my, my father was an interesting guy, brilliant guy, but he, he actually trained as a, as a Navy pilot, and, but his only real qualification was as a fitter and turner, you know, a, 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 in, in the trades. But his Navy career took him into the space program. Um, and so there were, when we were living in the remote part of the country, I'm old enough that this was relevant. Um, uh, we were living in the remote part of the country in a place called Carnarvon um, for the lunar landings. Um, and they were part of the tracking. Uh, so, so my father ended up being quite senior in that, in that sort of space, but grew, grew through all of that without any formal formal qualifications. Wow. Um, wow. You drove, I mean, really, you drove five or like hundreds of I mean, of it was, a, it, yeah, it was something like that. Crazy. We used to drive to, to Geraldton. I mean, this was so remote. There was no television, no radio. I, I, I remember seeing um, uh, and being amazed at seeing Ashbelt Roads. So, you, you know, it was remote. How, how long were you guys, was your family living out there? Oh, four years. Uh, I mean, it's very early in my in my childhood. There's okay. only snippets of memory. Um, but four years there, four years in in Adelaide, um, Sydney, and and Canberra. So wow. uh, you know, we we moved around uh, with uh, with the job. That's yeah. You you hear that a lot with you know where, when families have somebody who does have to move every few months or a few years. Um, it's both really cool because you get to see the world as you know as you're growing up. It gives you a different perspective. But I can also imagine it's it could be tough, you know, moving around. There's no sort of sense of oh, these are my friends from 20 years ago because you're constantly yeah. that type of thing. Yeah, I mean there, it, it, that's exactly right. And I mean, I went on to drag my kids around the world, right. so you, you know, it just continued to perpetuate. So when you were kind of you know middle school, high school, were you uh, where were, were you? Where was your family kind of living? 
we, we were living by that by that point um, uh, in Canberra, or at least uh, high school. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we were living in Canberra, so you know that was a it was a, like a a small city, large country town sort of thing at the time, but but a small city, um, but very much government, sort of like a small version of Washington DC mm-hmm. without the architecture. um and and do you remember i mean i know we were just briefly chatting about this before but i don't know what what was it like for you then you know what was it like for you kind of in high school were you you know you're a good student were you entrepreneurial i was was a smart student um uh i had my moments of intense laziness so i would um you know sort of feel that if i got a really good result one Term that I could coast the next. Um, so I was I wasn't really the best student. Um, uh, but as I was saying to you, um, you know, I went to not a particularly great school, to be honest. And um, uh, you know, this was Australia in the nineteen seventies, and so you, you know, I was I was also one of the shortest kids in the school. Um, so I, I sometimes feel that that high school was four years of survival training um, uh, to avoid being you know beaten up. Um, uh, for the smart kids who get beaten up, you'd sometimes downplay the, your test results or or how you were going. Um, uh, and I wasn't I wasn't a sort of a jock. I could swim um, and and competitively, but but um, you know, high school for me was largely unremarkable. I wasn't a great you know I didn't have any great entrepreneurial spin or anything along those lines. Um, but I did work through my entire high school. I mean, you know, I got my first job when I was twelve, um, uh, running a paper run. Um, uh, I'm old enough that. That you know, I was I ran a milk run, um, which meant that I I jumped off a truck and back on a truck with a dozen bottles, glass bottles of milk, and ran to people's houses to to deliver it, and then was a you know I'd like to call it executive chef at Kentucky Fried Chicken. But <laughs> I was just one of the one of the cooks at Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, and just earning money and working really hard. And what, while you were in school, so it was like after school evenings or weekends or something like that. Yeah, it was all it was all after school or before school, um, uh, and and weekend sort of work. I mean, I think I think what really drove it, to be honest, was that I loved having the relative independence of having my own money um, and and being able to do what I wanted with it, which was usually blowing it on something useful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but you know that's what I that's what I wanted and you know the thing in my family was instilled in all of us uh, my two brothers and myself was was just a, a really strong work ethic um, from our from our parents and 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 a big focus I wasn't particularly close to my father I have to I have to admit um, you know he was distant and I was an annoying teenager. Um, but, uh, but, but I, I did learn that work ethic from him and from my older brother, you know, I, I really took my lead from him uh, in a lot of my sort of teen years. Can you, I just, I, I just wanted to share, cause you shared that really wonderful story of how, when you were collecting five pence or, or five cents from, well, folk, 
Yeah, so my my entrepreneurial um, uh, element was one of my earliest memories living in Carnarvon uh, was standing at the gate of the the local pub. Um, uh, so and with my older brother, and uh, hold is standing in front of the gate and 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 offering to open the gate uh, for the patrons at the pub for five cents. Um, so we would be the the gate kids. Um, and try and earn money that way. So, I mean, this is a fence that was three feet high. <laughs> you walk over it. Um, but they would give us the five cents and we'd open the gate for them and wish them well as they went into the pub and close the gate. Um, there wasn't a lot to do in Carnarvon. I love it though. I love that story because number one, you were so young and, and, you know, I don't know if you remember what you thought about it, but it was something to do. You got, you got this transaction. I'm assuming people were probably quite nice. I mean, you're two small young kids, like, you know, and, 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 uh, but I don't know. They're just, I just, I just love that this idea of also kind of customer service. I mean, at its very core, you're doing something that these folks can completely do by themselves or might not even need to do. But the fact that you do it with, with you know, uh, with with love or, or or with with some kind of compassion or just invite being inviting, it adds a layer of kind of niceness or humanity that people will pay for. Frankly, um, I, I love that. I don't know. I think we were just playing off the sort of cute blonde-haired Australian kids um, uh, bit, um, uh, and certainly you know there's a couple of times we got pushed aside um, <laughs> and opened my own gate, kid. Um, uh, but it was. Yeah, you know that was just was just what you did. There, as I said, there wasn't a lot to do, and and we would um, think about things to keep entertained. So after you graduated, or after you finished high school, what was your what was your next step from there? Yeah, so this is where um, you, you know this is sort of where my career um, took an unusual path because uh, I was um, uh, you, you know I started living with my now wife when we were 18 um, and I was a parent at 20. So, you, you know, high school, when I came out of high school, um, my focus was on getting a job and earning money. Um, and, you know, you know, with having a, having a child at 20, um, uh, that, that became really a focus and I had to become very serious about just um, uh, what I was going to do to provide for my new family. And I had a second child by the time I was 22. Um, so, you, you know, in, I, it was Canberra and, and that meant a focus on the government. Um, that, was, that was the only real employer in town. Um, so I sat the exams to, um, uh, to enter the public service and, and I passed. And at the time I had a job as literally the photocopy boy in foreign affairs in the foreign service um, the equivalent of the state department um but i did the photocopy um and so i was doing that i set the exams to enter, you know properly fully enter the the public service and passed i was always good at exams and um and they literally offered me three choices i could go to the department of taxation the department of immigration or the Department of Social Security. And I actually thought about going into Social Security. Um, I discounted tax because I'm virtually enumerate. Um, uh, uh, thought about Social Security, 
but immigration was a little bit closer. So I went into that mm. and and that was where my career started. Um, and, and just I just want to clarify, when you say it was a little bit closer, you mean like the office where you would work was physically yeah. closer to your home? Physically closer to my home. That wow. was my career decision. Wow. I, I often look on my career as a combination of absolute good luck and manufactured good luck. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, manufactured good luck meaning putting myself in the place where I would be noticed or taking a risk or whatever it is, and we'll talk about that. But that, um, but that was just sheer good luck. That's incredible. I hope everyone who's ever been touched by you and your career know that if you had lived just a few kilometers down the road, you might have been a social security guru by now. Yeah, or or, or just sitting with my gray cardigan in the public service. <laughs> hey, not bad um, either. Yeah, wow. so it could have been that. I love um, that. And then, and then, you know, I started out um, uh, well in immigration and, and, you know, was progressing, but like everybody else. But then um, I had my next big break, which was that my wife, who worked in, um, uh, also worked in foreign affairs, um, was posted on a diplomatic posting to the Philippines. And, you know, we were super young. I was 23, she was 24, um, and, uh, and and she took a, a, a posting in, in the embassy. Um, and I had every intention of being a stay-at-home dad and looking after the kids. But, of course, we arrived and we had a house full of staff, so I had nothing to do. Um, so I was bored within a week. And, uh, and so I took a job in the embassy in the immigration department because I had the connections from the department, um, took a job as a locally engaged staff, and I was paid fifty dollars a week. Um, and uh, but it was the best possible training ground for what I then went on to do, um, uh, because I had to learn how to manage people at the immigration counter, um, make preliminary assessments, do all of that sort of work um, uh, in in that environment, cross cultural training, all of those things. Um, uh, as a as a locally engaged staff, and it was it was great, and I got quickly promoted to a second secretary, so to a fully fledged diplomat while I was there. Um, uh, so that was after a year of working as a locally engaged staff, and that was that was a huge another huge break. But by that time, I was that's where it become it's starting to become more manufactured good luck. Um, uh, because I knew that was where I wanted to be, um, and I was driving towards getting appointed as a diplomat um, uh, while I was working as a locally engaged. Um, so, so that's how it started. I'm curious. You know, I, I really like this kind of the separation you made with kind of sheer good luck and manufactured good luck. I'm curious, maybe especially at that time when you were still you know, young and, and figuring things out and, and just just starting your career. How did you manufacture your good luck back then, if you remember? I mean, do you remember anything you decided to do or chances you took or anything like that? Yeah, uh, um, there, there were a number. And, and I think, you know, one of the better examples of that was, was my next posting. I was cross-posted or we were cross-posted from the Philippines and I was um, uh, became the vice consul in Hong Kong, or one of the vice consuls in in Hong Kong. And um, 
when I got there, I had a little bit more experience or a lot more experience under my belt. Um, it was just after Tiananmen Square, so the embassy was busy. And I really focused on sitting down and taking a risk of reorganising the work of what I, the way I was doing things, which everyone else was, you know, this is how we do it. Um, and myself and some colleagues just said, we, we can do this better. We can, we can, you know, we can change it around. And I remember saying to my boss, I will do all of my work that I'm doing at the moment, but let me try doing it differently with a whole bunch of more work in my own time. So I basically doubled my workload to prove that the way I wanted to do it was better, more efficient, had better outcomes. Um, and that's what I sort of start to say is, is that manufacturing good luck. And the good luck element of it, because there's nothing revolutionary about that, but the good luck element of it was that all eyes were on Hong Kong at that time because of the post Tiananmen Square workload. Um, and so it became a sort of more high profile environment. And I feel I feel like that also goes back to what you were saying about not being afraid of hard work. I mean, you you quite literally doubled your own workload yeah. on your own. I mean, you could have just said, "Oh, you don't want to? Fine, I'll go home and hang out after a work day and spend time reading a book." But you said, "No, I I want to do this, and I'm willing to spend my time, unpaid, I presume, because it's after hours, just trying this out." Yeah, it was a public service job. I didn't get any more money for it. <laughs> right. Um, uh, but I, I just knew that we could do it. And and I ran the risk of failure, of course. But, um, you, you know, and then I, I built on that. You know, my success in Hong Kong um, meant when I came back, uh, and again, here's manufactured good luck. Um, when I came back, I worked for a period on a, on, on a panel, um, on the government side of a panel, where the, there were, there were high-profile business people advising the government on how to develop what was you know, became the investment category of immigration. Mm. So I was on the government side listening to these business people um, and, and learning from these quite senior business members. Um, and, I'll, and, and that will become relevant in a, in a minute. Um, but I went from that to become uh, one of the immigration ministers, um, departmental advisors in parliament. In Australia, and and again, you know, big risk because that can be career-ending because you're associating with um, uh, with with a particular political side, even though I didn't do political work. Um, uh, and it was it was um, high-profile failure. If you didn't work out there, it was it was a spectacular fall to to earth. Um, but I did really well, and and uh, again, I was young enthusiastic and worked really hard in, in Parliament. But I learned there about dealing with governments and, and um, the power of immigration in, a, in sort of nation-building sort of policy developments. And, and we made some, some amazing decisions. You know, I was involved in some amazing decisions in Parliament around or in the minister's office around developing policies that can be one of the major levers for the economy. Um, you know, I was junior, um, so I was just sort of observing a whole lot of this, but it was, it was really fantastic. Um, and then, you know, there was a changing government and I, and I skedaddled um, to India sort of thinking, 
this would be, you know, going on another diplomatic posting would sort of keep my profile a little lower. But again, again, manufactured good luck. I, I had topped the, the order of merit of, of everybody that was applying for a diplomatic posting that year. So I had my choice of anywhere in the world I wanted to go. And I chose New Delhi because, which was not an easy post. I mean, it was a fascinating place to live and, and a you know, really interesting work. But I chose New Delhi over, say, Vienna because, um, because it, was, it was challenging. It was going to keep me working hard, focused on everything I did. And, when, and then I was there, someone who was on the panel, that business panel I'd been working on years before, called me completely unexpectedly and offered me a job with PricewaterhouseCoopers. And that's how I resigned from the diplomatic or from the government, went into PwC. Pauline Mathewson, who, who was a partner in PwC, um, was the one. She rang me out of the blue and, and we'd worked together years before and said, do you want to come to, to work in PwC? And, you, you know, I'd done three diplomatic postings. My kids were getting to teenage years. It was time to move. And, and so I took the job and, and I was made a partner in a year. Um, so it was fast. Um, and, and, you know, I consider that to be manufactured good luck because it goes back to, to taking that job on the panel and, and working hard on that panel and impressing people. Yeah, because and and it's so fascinating because it sounds like you made the decision. I mean, it sounds like you were going in a really great tra trajectory on the government and the public service side. And I mean, it's so cool to live in, in different places and and like you said, meet different people. Um, so it, it kind of seems like the PwC job. I'm sure it was fascinating and a really great opportunity. But then there was also this additional practical aspect of like, look, my kids are getting older, can't keep dragging them around like this. They're, they're sort of in their formidable teenage years. Um, and was that, a, was that a tough decision, I guess? I mean, you'd spent your whole career now? Probably four seconds. Um, wow. About the extent of how long I considered it. <laughs> um, uh, you, you know, it, it just suited us at the time. And, um, you know, one of the... One of the things I wanted to sort of say, people often ask me what you know, how are you so successful in your career? And and I and I always say one of the most important things is to not lose sight of what's really important. Um, you know, my career advancement is really important, but I do that for myself, you know, and my ego and everything else and the money and and all those things, but I do it for my family as well. And and so I've always worked hard to strike the balance. Um, with my family commitments as well, and and um, uh, and so you, you know I was doing well in the government, but it was important for my family to stop that that transient lifestyle, and so and so it was an easy decision for me to to give that uh, you know give them more stability. Um, I'm curious before you before we jump into sort of. Your your time at PwC and afterwards, I'm just wondering. I mean, you you did have relatively high profile, um, you know, positions within the government, and and even if not, the decisions you were making rolled up to be really important. I mean, was there ever kind of any fear of, wow, I'm making a decision on behalf of the public to some extent, or I don't know, were there ever any instances where you did something and it didn't quite go as planned, and you kind of had to deal with that, you know, backlash? Um. 
Not not in that sense, because the government, you, you know, I wasn't in the scheme of things that senior. It was was definitely high profile. The, the Parliament House, of course, was different, but there's so many checks and balances that, yeah, yeah sure, sometimes um, I'd make a mistake and that, you, you know, in a big decision, but there was always that intervention at some point. And, and mm. government... You know, it's often disparaged, but government is actually a good training ground around thinking on your feet, around working within a budget. It's, I mean, that's where I got fiscal discipline from. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and and just being being focused on, on and making sure that, that you've got sufficient checks and balances to make sure that you avoid catastrophic decisions. Hmm. So... You know, I didn't do that. I mean, on my decision making, um, you know, as a government official, I look back and yeah, there's in my career I've made some bad decisions. You know, with cases that, as I look back, I think mm, that was the wrong that was the wrong decision to take, and that was monumentally impactful on those people. Yet sometimes wrong decision good for them, sometimes wrong decision, bad for them. And, you know, that's part of the job. Um, uh, but but I do actually still think of some of those cases uh, wow. all these years later um, and, and think, gee, I, I don't know how that went. Um, so, you know, doing refugee work and, 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 and those sorts of things, really difficult area. Wow. That's, yeah, that's interesting that you've probably done, I mean, how many do you think you've done? Thousands? You know, you went through sort of hundreds or thousands of uh, decisions on people's applications at embassies. Thousands and thousands, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and and you know, I mean, most of them you just you just make the decision. But often it required a great degree of subjectivity, um, and you had to balance it all out: what the legal requirements are, what the policy requirements are, what is the right outcome here. Um, and some of them were tough, but you know, that was. That was the nature of the job. Yeah. Um, so, so in some ways, going into the into private practice, which was really more about commercial life and commercial focus, was in some ways easier um, uh, because you knew the outcome was: don't mess up your business, um, keep the client, um, stay focused, build your business. So, so the goals in some ways are are easier because they're more clearly defined. Um, and uh, and and I just I, I I felt really comfortable when I moved into the into the commercial side of things. It was surprising because um, there's a lot of civil servants that don't transition well. Um, but I, I didn't have a have a problem with it. And I went into PwC as I said. I was a partner there. Um, and then Sarbanes Oxley came along, and you know, big surprise. Um, uh, suddenly, uh, we couldn't provide these services within uh, PwC to audit clients. And I'd spent so many years in, in the five years in PwC working so hard to build what was then the biggest practice in the country um, uh, that um, I just didn't want to give that up. And so we, we um, in a sale, left PwC and, and went to Fragman. Um, and that was when, you, you know, the, the the concept of a global immigration program was really, really in its early stages. Mm -hmm. And, um, you, you know, I've been really fortunate. The other thing about my career is I've been very fortunate to work with people that are a lot smarter than I am. Um, 
And so, you know, working with Lance Kaplan and Austin Fragerman, um, and as we looked at the concept of building a global program where companies would be able to come and, and, and get immigration support anywhere in the world was so new. And we had to really start to create that industry. Um, and it was fascinating. And, and it, was so, it was so amazing walking into Fragment because I was suddenly home. I was there with other immigration practitioners because, well, I had a great practice in PwC. It was a minnow compared to the rest of the organization. Mm. Um, so, um, so moving into Fragment was, was extraordinary. And, and then, you know, I ran Australia and I ran the Asia-Pacific region for Fragment. Um, and then, and then something terrible happened. Um, uh, our younger son um, contracted leukemia, was diagnosed with leukemia, and, wow. and died. And and in that, you know, that that year after he died, I was just lost. You, you know, I just I worked, but I was just bereft. And that's where I come back to that issue about balancing family. And 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 so, yeah, Austin and Lance reached out and and I think half because there was a need but half because it was a rescue mission um said move to the US and and I did and and I've not looked back since I mean it's 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 I mean I moved to South Africa for a while and London for a couple of years to run EMEA um but the US is now home and centered and and so um you, you know that 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 role um just continues to grow uh, or continued to grow. Wow. The step to leave. That's crazy. I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that. It must have been, I mean, difficult, but also, a, I guess to your point, a, a reminder, perhaps a realignment of priorities and just thinking about family and what's important. I, I don't know that it was a realignment. I think it was an affirmation mm-hmm. because, because I'd always tried as best I could to balance my work and, and home. You know, I spent a year basically running the Australian practice from the hospital, you know, while he was getting treatment. And, and, um, and I honestly think that what kept our family from imploding so, like so many years would is that we, we kept those ties. We kept, we were a close family and we remained a close family because we'd always had that commitment. So I didn't need to sort of, um, be reminded of the priorities. It was a, an affirmation that I I got it right. Um, uh, if that makes sense, I've yeah. I've always said to people I can handle an enormous amount of stress at work and I can handle stress at home, but I can't handle stress at both. And so keeping the balance was really important. Yeah, I think that's such a really powerful takeaway. And and you know, I'm assuming that the family kind of everyone leaned on each other in, in different aspects of the day and of life and how important it is to have a safety net and, and a support system, you know, whether yeah. it's a devastating life experience or maybe even just more ordinary kind of work stress, just to be able to have someone to, to yeah, to lean on, I think is important. Yeah. And to have that that support because they understand where you're going. You know, they, 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 I, I always talked about work without, you know, breaching government confidentiality, but we always talked about work at home and, and everything else. And so my kids learned from that. And, and, you know, my, my oldest son is now very successful and in a completely different field. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we talked 
business and and we and that we maintain the family ties first yeah um and so now you've been in so you mentioned that the firm kind of eventually moved you to um the US or or you know you and your family kind of decided to move to the US but it sounds like you did have some steps along the way i guess or some stops where you, you ran EMEA and, and other parts of the of the firm? No, other way. I moved to the US. I see. Um, uh, and, uh, and was settled in and, and, and very happy and comfortable. Um, uh, then at very short notice needed to move to South Africa for six months to, to just stand up the Africa practice a bit. Um, and then from there to London for two years and then back to the States. Got so... It. You know, with all that talk about family stability, my wife and I have moved house 26 times, um, seven different countries over the time we've been married. She she was very clear and unambiguous on the last move that if I so much as asked her to move house one more time, she would in the following order divorce me, take all my money, have me killed and (laughs) ashes on a garbage dump in New Jersey. So no more house moves. (laughs) Oh, that's fair. Well, then let's make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I guess, you know, you, you've talked about the fact that you, so you're now in the US and, and just can you remind me or, or, or us, what year was it when you kind of settled in the US and said, okay, this is where we're staying? Uh, so that's a really interesting question because when we first moved to the States in 2006, um, we... We really um, thought of it as a as another posting or another you know sort of assignment um, for two to three years and um, and then um, uh, and and then we we started to have conversations. My wife and I started to have conversations about well, where do we want to be? Where do we see ourselves when we retire? Um, now, my son and his wife. Uh, moved to the to the US. They live six minutes away, um, but years later. Um, uh, so so that made the decision much easier. But but we re- we sort of um, had been in the states for um, and uh, you know we held a green card and, and everything else. But we'd been in the states for a number of years, um, and we'd had a conversation the night before, and we sort of reached the conclusion that, that actually. We can't see ourselves going back to Australia and that the U.S. was home and we loved this area. Um, and, and I remember driving down the Garden State Parkway the next morning and all of a sudden it dawned on me that I was a migrant, um, that, that even though this was, you know, the seventh country I'd lived in, um, this was the first time I was an actual migrant. Um, and... Uh, and it was an extraordinary sort of thought, um, and and I went, wow, you know, I'm I'm not planning to return to Australia, which I'd always considered to be home, and and um, uh, and and it was the right decision, you know, we've taken out citizenship, and and um, and the US is home for us, and and um, you know, I now have two grandchildren, and I and and they're you know they're Australian, Austrian, and American citizens. The, Triple A, um, and and I sort of look at um, at them, and I think over time, you know, the connection to Australia is going to disappear. But it's a it's a fascinating mindset to suddenly think, no, this is actually home. Can I, can I ask you about that? Because I, I think about this a lot too. You know, my family came here from the Ukraine. I've actually never been back. Um, all of our family from there left, and 
you know, my, my partner speaks Spanish and doesn't, you know, is not from the Eastern Europe. And I always think about how sort of potentially future generations will lose uh, that connection. You know, you read, you read uh, the Wikipedia pages of various people and it's like, oh, their great, great grandfather came from somewhere, but they personally don't have that. Um, I don't know. Have you ref- like, how does that make you feel or do you care? Or is, is it just like a, is it just like an, a philosophical idea, but you don't feel anything about it? Or do you, do you feel maybe sad? I don't know. How, how do you feel about that? I don't feel sad because it's the result of, of the right choice. You know, we, we're not, you know, a lot of migrant stories are about um, needing to leave. You know, we chose to leave. So, so, you, you know, we're privileged in that sense that, that it wasn't a decision that was um, forced upon us. Um, but, but do I, does it feel odd? I don't, I wouldn't say sad. I wouldn't say, um, you know, you're not wistful about the fact that ultimately my grandchildren will not really have a connection to Australia and certainly their children will have none. Um, uh, but you, but, but does that make a difference? It's just, it's, it's just odd. I can't describe it any other way. It's just this sort of thought that, the branch of the family is 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 now in the United States, and 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 it, that won't reverse. Um, so over time, you know, there will be distant relatives of my, you know, um, uh, my children and, and grandchildren. They will have distant relatives in Australia, but they'll probably never meet them. And that is just an odd thought, um, uh, but it is what it is. Yeah. That's true. I, I feel. I guess I feel about it. I'm just. I'm almost asking because I'm curious. Almost how to think about how should I reflect on these things? Um, it, you're right. It, it's. It's not. It is. It just is. It, it's life. I mean, it's the movement of people that has happened for since the dawn of time. I suppose when people just move and some folks stay, some folks go. And um, I guess I always have found uh, this is a little bit of an aside, but I feel like I've always had such. I don't know. If, it's not respect, but admiration, I guess, for people who've like lived somewhere for generations and they have this, they're just part of where they're from. I don't know why I think that's cool. Um, and so I, I suppose thinking about the fact that, well, you know, my family, we're migrants too, and and that's never going to be my life in a way. Um, I don't know. But yeah. Well, it's probably cool because it's, it's not your story. Right. So it always seems more interesting than it probably actually is. Um, you, you know, I mean, Australia is a country of migrants just like the United States is. So, you know, back in the 1800s, the Ryan side of the family came from Ireland. Um, uh, so they did the same thing. Um, now, theirs was more push because of, you know, the potato famine and all of that sort of history. Um, but, but, that's, but that's what it was. Hmm. So, you know, I, I, I agree. I think it's that, that story of movement around the world that makes it such an interesting place to, you know, the world is an interesting place um, because of a lot of that. And we're lucky to, to be alive, I suppose. Um, I, I think it's a really interesting transition because now I'm I'm curious, you know, at this point you're, you're in the U S you've gotten your citizenship and congratulations. Um, How does nomadic start? Where does that come into play? Um, Yeah. When I was in Fragman, we always thought um, that, that there was a need for a, a focus on the short-term travel end of the immigration spectrum. Um, 
And it's something that we've bounced around for quite some time, building it within the law firm um, uh, and, and within that, that behemoth, that, that huge structure would have been extremely difficult. Um, and so, you, you know, we have very close association with Fragerman. Um, there's no secret about that. Um, but we, we stepped out of the firm to be able to build the technology from the ground up, having, you know, behind us decades of knowledge um, of what, what was needed in the market, what would work, um, and, and also how do we build a business with longevity in mind? Um, and and I know um, you, you know there was a question um, uh, that was sent before this about you know is the short term market sort of vulnerable because um, you know it's easy to get visas that, you know with e visas and 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 visa free arrangements and everything else um, and you, you know my answer is provided you have your eyes on the future and where it is going then you know it's it's the right time to build a business but it's got to be based on on robust technology um uh you, you know nomadic is built with the concept of it being really end to end um uh sorry i thought i turned off the notifications um uh really end to end um but with integrated sort of compliance assessment in it now we can't build that level of knowledge in a startup like Nomadic. So we are that's where our ongoing affiliation and association with Fragerman comes in, because we can we can tap into that vast knowledge. Um, and you know, that's Fragerman's greatest asset. Um, uh, and apply it in the technology. So we're delivering that in a much more efficient sort of way and and in you know with this specific short-term travel in mind so you know what we're focused on is building a business that really uses technology that we've built from the ground up um uh so we're you know bringing in rpa um uh obviously ocr or you know all of that sort of modern technology um but applying, running it through that knowledge base, which is where the market differentiation comes in. And, you know, to the question about the short-term market, compliance is going to be, in our view, increasingly important as we go forward. And that's needed, whether you need, whether it's an e-visa, um, you, you know, you need an actual visa or even under a visa waiver program, it's the compliance management element that you need. So, so we built the business with that in mind, and and we you know we really feel bullish about where we're going with it. Can you, can you explain a little bit, I guess, of how nom- like what is nomadic? If I don't know anything about it at all, can you just like can you explain what it does and how it works? Yeah. So we're a we're a technology led business um, uh, focused on short term cross border compliance um, and and associated transaction um, uh, support. So, so we're focused on um, that end-to-end part of business visas, of posted worker notifications in the EU, of document services and the like, um, uh, and consular services. So, you know, that traditional sort of way um, and uh, and and but just using technology to 
bring in more efficiency, um, keep our costs at, at an appropriate level, um, and streaming that that knowledge and handling the volume. I mean, frankly, um, uh, you know, this is a business that needs to scale. So we have to be a global business to be able to 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 meet those sort of large scale program needs, and and that. Um, uh, that that's part of what we've got to build. We have to build it with that in mind. So, you know, it's about that global footprint, the technology and efficient that you, brings the efficiency and cost containment um, and and the efficient delivery of knowledge um, uh, to help people manage those global programs. Are your, so your clients are typically, are they large companies, small companies? It could be, but they're companies. It's not individuals, right? Um, uh, at this point, um, you know, ultimately we'll start looking at, at the sort of B2C um, business. Um, uh, but at this point, you know, we are focused on the corporate, on the corporate market, on that program management. Um, you, you know, is it, is it big business or small business? It can be either. Um, you, you know, in fact, in many ways, the need is greater in the smaller medium enterprise market. Um, because they don't have the access to that knowledge or even necessarily the understanding of where to begin. Um, so we definitely are, are looking at that. Um, but, but, you know, we've got, we've got ambitions around the business. I mean, obviously our big competitor is CIBT. They're a good organisation. They've built a, a very successful business. Um, uh, you, you know, we, we, we've, we've got work ahead of us, but... Um, you know, focusing on the on the corporate market um, and aligning with our our close friend um, in Fragment is really important in 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 our business model. Do your clients have to be Fragment clients as well, or no? No, um, uh, they're, they're definitely not. And in fact, um, we have a number of clients that are not Fragment clients. Mm. Um, you know, we we can be standalone. We can be integrated. Our and actually, that's part of our, our concept about where immigration technology needs to be. And I know that's something that people are interested in. You know, in my view, you have to recognise your place in the entire ecosystem, um, and that you you can't be. You know, the big four try to be all things to all people, um, and and they. They they sell a good story, um, but I do think that that the sort of area we work in requires a great deal of expertise. And so, where I'm going with that is that we need to make sure that our business can link with experts around the world um, in different in different organisations and different fields and everything else. And so, we need a degree of independence or autonomy to be able to. Um, provide services to clients that may have a different immigration provider, for example. Um, you know, we can be standalone um, and and focused on that. Um, um, and I think that that you've got to have that agility. You know, there was a, I think you used the term earlier, nimbleness. So, you know, there's we have to be nimble. Um, uh, in delivering these services, and it's a challenge. There's no doubt. It's a, it's there's a lot to do, um, and it's you know we've been obviously impacted by the pandemic, and 
um, uh, and we've taken the time to continue to build out our focus and our project, our, our, um, our technology and, and the products that we're doing and looking at, well, what's next? I, I want to get to that in just a moment, but I do have, I guess, one question that I, I'm backtracking a little bit. Uh, but you know, you said you, I guess, this idea was born out of, I'm sure, discussions and things that were being worked on internally. But then, of course, what you mentioned was that spinning off and kind of being an, ent- an entity would allow for a different experience of building the company. I guess my question to you is, you know, we've talked so far about your entire journey and everything you've done in Australia, around the world, and then you know, with PwC and Fragment. Why, I guess, why you at, you know, with, with Nomadic, was this something that you wanted? Was this something that, like, how did it happen that you became the, you know, the, the, the CEO of the company and sort of, I don't know, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, um, uh, sometimes I ask myself the same question, <laughs> particularly over the course of the last year. Um, I've asked that same question. Um, but I, I am entrepreneurial in 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 my in my approach to so many things, and um, and I am a great risk taker. And I just felt that it was the right time that I that I I could see um, there was an opportunity, a need in the market. Um, uh, you, you know that that this was the 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 right thing to do, and that you know I I'd done a lot in Fragment. Um, I'd, I'd run every every region. Um, you know, I'd spent years on the on the firm's executive committee. Um, it was it was time to do something something new uh, and and challenging. Um, and 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 I was sort of uh, you, you know I was just the the right person to uh, you, you know to sort of step out and take this on because I did have the experience of being. Quite a senior partner in the firm, um, running a big, uh, you, you know, a, a, a multifaceted organisation. Um, but as I've said, being being a senior partner in an organisation like Fragment, and being the CEO in an organisation is is quite different. Um, you know, suddenly I talked about the checks and balances and the interventions to make sure that that. Um, that things were were right. Suddenly, their safety net was gone, um, and you had to make um, you have to make some decisions. and And I've and I've been surprised at, at just how 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 many decisions you have to make, even though I was making them all the time in 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 Fragment. Um, uh, but it's 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 flying much more solo, and and um, uh, and and I love it. I, I really enjoy it. Um, uh, so, you, you know, so we, we've, we've, um, we, while we are still in a startup sort of phase in some ways, you, you know, that association and our, and our experience means we've got, you know, big connections and, and everything else. Um, so we're, we're a startup plus, uh, I think is probably the best way to describe it. That's cool. I like that. I like that. I mean, it is a unique and, and frankly, quite lucky place to be in. You have the scrappiness and I suppose creativity and nimbleness of a startup. And, you know, you can always kind of rely on or get some support from a really large established organization. It's pretty cool. And and I will I will also mention that that I when I stepped out of the firm and left the partnership and and moved into this, um, a band of intrepid people went with me. Um, and you, you know they are 
is as committed to the business. And, and frankly, that's where a lot of the checks and balances do come from because there are times when we'll have a staff meeting and they'll look at me like I've lost my mind um, and they'll speak up and say so. And that's a healthy thing. Um, uh, so, you know, maybe the checks and balances are coming from from below rather than, than from above as it as was in the past, but they're still there. Do you think, I guess, I guess have one, one more question about this, and I'm really interested to hear kind of your thoughts about what's going to happen in COVID, you know, post-COVID, especially as technology adoption continues to grow. But I'm curious, you mentioned this, this idea of, you know, okay, so you, you mentioned how public service is a really great way to learn how to manage um, people and, and, and things like that, and, and I suppose decisions. And then, of course, you became a partner in this really large organization. And you mentioned, though, that there was still a difference, even as a partner, between that and, and being a CEO, and there aren't those checks and balances. Do you think that you've... I don't know. How do you think that's impacted or, or has it impacted your kind of management style? I mean, do you feel like you're now kind of almost starting from scratch in, 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 in that you're learning new skills and, and taking on new roles as a leader uh, in this type of organization? Without a doubt. Um, uh, and that's part of why it's so enjoyable because mm-hmm. it's a continuation of the learning. Um, uh, and, uh, and so, you know, every day there's something new to learn. I mean, I'm not a technology person. I'm not um, uh, particularly uh, adept in, in that sort of field. And I'm learning a, a lot as I, as I go from some really brilliant people. Um, uh, and, you know, my job is to steer the ship. Um, uh, you know, my, in reality, my career is a story of, of being increasingly senior, but within ever smaller organisations in reality. Um, so maybe I've actually just spent the last 30 years staying still. Um, but, but, um, uh, but, but, you know, there is, there is so much to learn still. Um, and part of it is is different management style. Um, you know, I I need to be more um, collaborative than I sometimes have been in my past because um, because I need to avoid making mistakes as I go, um, and I need to listen to the people that have come with me because they've taken the same risk that I did, um, and you know, and I have great respect for that. So you you, you know, it's it's. I, I do think I'm a more collaborative person, um, consultative person than I um, sometimes have been because because that's part of the new skill set that I need to master. That's cool. I love that. I mean, I, I love it because it's it's inspiring to me because it shows me that sort of stagnation does not have to be a part of you know moving ahead in in, in your you know, in your career, there's so many people who are like, oh, I can't wait till I make partners so I can just relax, you know, but the reality is it's a personality. If you, even if you make partner, you can, I'm sure there are opportunities to relax or, but if you want to, you can always continue pushing yourself and learning more and things like that. Uh, if there's one thing and, and th- that I was always monumentally intolerant of, it was exactly that view that, oh, I've made partner. I can now put my feet up on the desk. Um, it's the opposite. Um, you have to lead mm-hmm. by example. Um, you cannot expect people to do things that you're not prepared to do. Um, and you have to understand your business. 
um, because it's disrespectful for those that are working for you if you don't. Um, you know, fortunately, Fragerman um, is not that environment. It, you know, never was. Um, and uh, and so, you, you know, I, 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 I didn't see that, but I certainly have seen it in organisations. And, and I just, I, I don't know how you can, you can have that view and be successful. Yeah, I totally agree. And also, it just seems boring. Um, yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, why would you do? Why would you voluntarily do that? Um, <laughs> right. Uh, sort of sit there and just and just tick off the time. Um, right. Do something productive with it. Right. Absolutely. Um, so I, you know, I, I want to be kind of conscious of of your time and and thank you. This is just so cool, and I, I'm loving this conversation. I'm curious, looking at the world today, right? I mean, I just got my first shot. Um, finally, my arm, my arm sore has gone down a little bit, but you know, the the world's sort of changing and and moving forward a little bit. There's obviously awful, an awful spike in cases in in India and other parts around the world right now. Um, and and you know, I'm hoping that all the organizations and and government entities and everyone can band together to to help. Um, but overall, it does feel in the U.S. and other parts of the world that there are more people being vaccinated. There's some travel bubbles opening up in APAC, this EU to and US kind of corridor. Um, so, tr- And there's certainly pent up travel demand, both business and certainly leisure. Um, where do you think, you know, where do you think the, ind- what, is, what do you think the industry is going to look like? I know that's a really big question, but, you know, if you have any sort of initial thoughts uh, and then I guess my second follow-up question would be, where do you think technology fits in? So, what do you th- where where do you think I guess it's going first and foremost? Sure. So, so I'll focus on the short term immigration sort of market yeah. rather than than the sort of you know work permit um, practice of law side. Um, um, you, you're right. I think that we are seeing signs of increased interest, and and uh, what we're really seeing is actually um, organisations getting prepared for the remobilization of the global workforce. Um, will we see travel return to the levels of 2019? No, I don't think so. Not not for a few years. Um, and that's because people are so much more comfortable with Zoom calls, et cetera. Um, and that short business trip probably will be um, will be able to be handled more, you know, on a on a Zoom call, for example. Um, uh, but but there is always going to be that need for the face-to-face, um, uh, for the, the, the check-in um, and whatever else was driving business travel. So it will be a smaller pie, but I think that more organisations, because of um, the compliance-related elements of, of COVID, just the fact that you know there's a greater awareness that you need to know where your people are, um, when they're traveling um, uh, and and what that means, um, I think means that more organizations are going to be and and right down into that SME sort of market, more organizations are going to be wanting um, a, a an appropriate level of control. Um, and it really goes back to those years many years ago. In, in sort of building a global immigration program before it was siloed into just country specifics and the concept of building a global program, I think that's what we're looking at in the short-term market as well. So it's exciting in one way, um, 
but it's challenging as well because because the compliance elements are actually increasing, um, and that's where technology comes in. So that that segues beautifully into that technology discussion because you can't do that without a technology framework. Um, um, you can't you can't be part of the the broad infrastructure of travel. You can't bring in the knowledge and you don't have to be you know associated with a fragment or a big four i mean there's 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 a lot of knowledge out there it's available um but you can only sort of pull the threads together with technology um and so where do i see technology um there is no other answer than technology is going to be increasingly important um uh that that there are opportunities for some real continued innovation in the technology space um, uh, as we as we go forward. You know, there's there's blockchain and what that's going to mean around document management and, and those sorts of things. There is opportunity um, there, and and so you know, again, from my own business perspective, I feel bullish about where we're going. You'd expect me to say that, but I really mean it. Um, uh, and for the industry, um, there's room for for more players, um, uh, and there is some well-established players that that are solid um, uh, deliverers of service. and And I think that you'll see um, they're going to come back uh, after the pandemic, but they're going to come back more sophisticated than than the than prior to the pandemic. Um, uh, in sophisticated in their technology, sophisticated in their thinking, and sophisticated in the understanding of where we all fit together. For people who are listening, and really me as well, you know, especially because you mentioned you're in the the B two B market right now. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think? Do you have any kind of thoughts or or maybe even suggestions or kind of best practices of? Uh, Ensure, making sure that number one, if if their technology, immigration technology, or you know, global travel technology companies, how do they best convince companies that adopting technology is the right thing right now? And then on the flip side, if there are people listening from you know within HR or global mobility or something in house, like what's that message to say? Look, the time is now for technology because we, we always talk about it, and technology is almost lost its meaning because we just say it so much. But still there's pushback, right, from companies saying we don't know or whatever, it doesn't fit or, or whatever. But but we on the technology side obviously understand there's a benefit. So I don't know, what are your like how would you convince someone to say, look, right now is the time to invest in whether it's nomadic or something else, to invest in technology to support your global mobility or immigration program? Well I think I think from a from an HR and global mobility perspective, um in the short-term space, it's often been um, uh, the ugly duckling. You know, no one, no one wanted to own that short-term program management. It was the mm. travel desk and uh, and everything else. But the but the you know the exposure risk, the com- non-compliance, the penalties associated with that, or just the general issue of um, having people go and and um, uh, and create some kind of exposure for their employer um, means that that the people that 
the, the global mobility function or HR or the immigration function, if you're an organisation that has a dedicated immigration function, um, have to turn their focus to this. Um, and the pandemic has really has really highlighted it in many ways because um, prior to this, there was just no real, not, not even about controls because you've got to be careful. Business travel of all things, um, you can't strangle your business. You can't, you can't um, put in a technology or a, or a process that is going to strangle that the business, the ability for someone to go out and sell services or service that piece of machinery or whatever it is. You can't do that. You actually have to build the technology in a way that facilitates a, an improved level of compliance um, and at the same time facilitates um, the business doing what it needs to do. And, and it is possible to achieve both. And I think the perception in the past has been that one is at odds with the other. You know, if you have a program, um, a compliance program, then you're stopping the business from doing what they want to do. There may be some things that you need them to stop because that's a problem. Um, but in, in many cases, you, you know, delivering, using technology, and this is where you come back to the point about how technology is the only way to do this, using technology to be able to improve that program outcome um, and the and the you know knowledge of what you're doing in a flex you know what what your business people are doing um, actually encourages a, a responsibility from the travelers um, because it's not all last minute it doesn't have to be last minute um, uh, or or even non-compliant you know I'm just going to go anyway sort of thing so you've got to use technology to to be able to put that structure in place to facilitate the business so that they can continue to do what they're doing um, but you know what they're up to if that makes sense totally I mean I, I I love that I had never even thought about it that way of technology actually, makes the let's just if we just talk about the short-term business travel it actually makes it look better um you know this thing that you know as you said maybe the ugly duckling or just something that feels like it's like there are too many restrictions and maybe it's just not a, a, a really streamlined it's always a messy process technology can actually make that process easier so it makes short-term travel more appealing correct now you yep. have really easy way of tracking everything of, of holding on to documents etc People will, I've always had the view that, that given the choice, people will do the right thing. Um, so, you know, where they, where they don't, it's often because they don't have the choice because it's, they've, they've not had access either to the information or they don't have time to, 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 to get the right visa um, uh, to, to, to do the right thing. And they ultimately have to do their job. So if you put the structure in place and it's built in a way that um, it's easy for them to use um, and you're taking away the stress of it and, and the thought that, oh, I have to get on a plane even though I'm on a, on a tourist visa and I should be wearing a Hawaiian shirt and drinking a, a, a cocktail um, and doing no more than that, it takes away that stress because you've got a, a framework within which they can keep compliant and do the right thing. And I think that's people's natural, that's where they want to be. The reason they don't often is because they just 
have run out of time. You know, like I have to do this, so I'm just going to wing it. Hmm. Interesting. That's interesting. Um, I want to. I usually like to end with kind of one uh, maybe fun question. Um, so you've been. How many countries have you lived in? Seven. Seven countries. Um, how many countries have you traveled to? Do you know? Oh, no, <laughs> no. no. Um, a big proportion of the world. Um, uh, yeah, it's more. What haven't I traveled to? Um, and in fact, in the U.S., I've driven across the U.S. twice. I love wow. a driving holiday, um, and I'm determined to go to every state. Um, uh, and um, uh, so, no, I, I've no idea how many countries I've been to. So, so certainly more than a hundred. That's incredible. Um, <laughs> wow. So it'll be really hard for you to, uh, to maybe to answer this question. But um, well, my preliminary question is: Are you a street food kind of person? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you have your most memorable street food experience anywhere in the world? Uh, you know, I've always said, well, I said street food, yes. Um, and then immediately I was going to pivot to something else. But my two favorite places in the world to eat are London and Singapore. London's not street food, right, um, right. But, but Singapore. Um, uh, but, but you know, um, probably my most memorable street food uh, story was was eating jalabis in uh in new delhi in, in actually in old delhi um uh on, on the street um and thinking at the time oh, it's a good chance i'm gonna die uh, but but just magnificent and that oh that and being in Kathmandu um and and eating of all things a very plain little um, margarita pizza. I know that's not not um, uh, what you would be expecting, but have that and 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 a glass of beer, and the Himalayas are in front of me, and a whole bunch of Tibetan monks walked past as I'm uh, chanting as I'm eating, and it's just one of those memories. I'm like, wow, this is an extraordinary thing for a kid from Canberra um, uh, to to be. Um, uh, to be experiencing, but you know, street, street food. My son is a chef, um, so wow. food is in our family is very successful um, on the fine dining side. Um, uh, so food is something we're focused on. Um, but there are so many. To me, that's what travel is all about. It's that's such a big part of the cultural experience. It's not just traipsing around the castles and the cathedrals and the forts and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. It's experiencing the food and the drink and the culture, and, and I, I love it. Um, so I have, uh, I, as I'm saying it, I'm thinking of dozens of street food experiences that I've had that have just been magnificent. Well, I, I think maybe um, if you're still looking for more work to do, I think we'd all love to see the book of... Uh, you know Brendan's one top one hundred street food experiences. Yeah, yeah. There's a few. There's a few in there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love it. Well, Brendan, thank you so much. I this has been really insightful and just delightful. Um, and appreciate you sharing so much about you and your life and and your journey. And I mean, I certainly feel. Um, I mean, inspired. I, I always feel inspired, but I, also this kind of like practical feeling of 
you know, it, the careers don't have to just go up and then end. They can keep going off on different branches and those branches could sort of restart a little bit, but then give you... And, and it just really, I think, inspiring. So hopefully um, other folks who are listening and watching feel the same way and uh, looking forward to, you know, good news and exciting news from from you and, and Nomadic. So thank you so much for, for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Absolutely. Absolutely. 